Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The Gospel of the Lord. Okay, here's a, here's a serious question. You paying attention to me here? Are you with me? Okay. Uh, Who am I? Father Michael. Father Michael. You know what my kids call me? Dad. How did you know? Dad. Because that's what I call my dad. Yeah. You know what my my mom calls me? Husband? My mom. (laughs) What What does my mom call me? Kids, well, sometimes she calls me son. She does. That's usually when I'm in trouble. When she says son, I know I'm in trouble. Now, what do you think my wife calls me? Sometimes she calls me, what did I hear over there? Hey, you? Yeah, I get that a little in a while. Sometimes I get Mike. Sometimes I get Sweetheart. Sometimes I get What Were You Thinking? (laughs) But it all depends on how you know me. Who I am to you determines something about what you call me. You'll call me Father Michael. Someone else may call me Mike. Someone else may call me son. Someone else may call me dad. It all depends on how you know me. The gospel lesson that we, Michael, some call me Michael. That's my favorite, actually. So, thank you. The gospel lesson, Jesus is asking the disciples who he is. And people had all kinds of different ideas about who he is. And what Jesus was teaching the disciples was... If you know me as the Son of God, then that relationship is a very special spiritual one. Some people know Jesus as a teacher. Some people think of Jesus as a prophet. Some people think of Jesus as a a good man who lived a long time ago. 
But we know Jesus to be the Son of God. And he brought us a very special understanding of God that impacts the way that we live our life. And I hope that as you go, you're going to understand more about that Jesus that we know as the Son of God who taught us all about love. So enjoy your time. Please pray with me. Jesus, your name is life. Your name is love. We thank you for your care for us, for your mercy, for your grace, and for the way that you see each of us through the lens of forgiveness, through the lens of care and concern. Open our hearts and minds to your spirit this morning. In your name we pray, amen. So many of you know I have five grandchildren, and, um, and um, three of them, sadly for me, live up in the Seattle area, and, and their names are Kai, who's eight and a half, and Kalena, who will be five in October, and Ella, who are two, who's two and a half. And they're fun, and it's crazy when I'm up there, and it's busy, but they're great. They're really, really nice kids. So when Gretchen calls me or I call her when I'm down here, often our time to speak um, that gets the least interrupted is when she's giving them breakfast in the morning and they're all corralled at the table and having breakfast. So Friday morning, I got a phone call from Gretchen, and we're on speakerphone because the kids want to say hi too. And she said, Nona, you'll never guess what we're having for breakfast for the first time. And I said, I don't know. And she said, we're having cream of wheat. And she was telling me this because she knows it's my favorite hot cereal. And I said, well, how are you guys enjoying it? And Kalina said, it's so yummy. And Ella, you know, at two and a half is trying to say something. And, and Kai says, I won't try it. <laughs> and and I, I said, Kai, you've got to try it with the brown sugar on it. It's so good. You're going to love it. And so then Gretchen and I began to talk. And as often happens when we're talking with the kids present also, there are regular interruptions either um, the kids interjecting or Gretchen making corrections. And, and at one point I heard Gretchen say, it wasn't that long of a conversation, I heard Gretchen say, Kai, bring your back bowl back over the table, you have to taste it. So, so I could hear him arguing, and, um, and finally she said, Kai, bring it back over to the table. So I could hear him grumbling, he brings it back to the table. And Gretchen said, you have to take three bites. 
And Kai argued, and she said, Kai, you have to take three bites or I'm going to take $10 away from you. <laughs> now, with Kai, money talks. You know, he's, he's at eight and a half, and he's starting to realize that if he saves up his money, he can buy a Lego or whatever. So, very shortly after she said, if you don't take three bites, I'm going to take ten bucks, he started to melt down. And Gretchen said, Mom, I got to go. Bam. So, the day went on, and I, I had to go to work. You know, I went up and showered and got on my way, and... And um, so on my way home, I called her and I said, so how did the meltdown go? And she said, full-blown, screaming, crying, he was completely out of control. And I said, well, what did he say? And she said, he was screaming, I hate you, you're the worst mother, I'm going to run away from home, I don't want to be part of this family anymore. And Gretchen, Gretchen started, you know, she's really good. Kai, Kai's a really bright kid, and he doesn't do this often, but when he does it, he, he does it in a big way. So, <laughs> so Gretchen finally got him calmed down and said, and said, Kai, do you realize that you've just created this gigantic thing over a bowl of hot cereal? And he kind of chuckled, and, and she said, she said, why are you so upset? And he said, I'm not perfect. <laughs> and Gretchen was kind of taken aback. And, but she asked him, she said, who told you you had to be perfect? And he said, I do. I did. So, of course, more conversation ensued. But... I think that conversation of Kai's with Gretchen and that meltdown really highlights a demon that we all struggle with, and that is the idea that we have to be perfect, that we are called to live a life of perfection, and that, that we, are, um, we are expected by either our own standards, in Kai's case, or by standards that have been imposed on us by a parent or a teacher or a coach or a boss, whoever, um, to be perfect. Even a few weeks ago, we read in the gospel when Jesus said, and taken out of context, it's kind of, it's kind of startling that Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And when I hear that, I go, right, I'll get right to that, Jesus. You know, I'm, I'm fully capable of, do, capable of being perfect, not, you know. So, so we have this, this in us, and we have these pressures from the outside and from the inside where we think we have to be perfect. And this false notion um, is part of our culture as well. It's embedded in our language. We say things like, you're the perfect person for the job. That outfit looks perfect on you. That was the perfect song. And it was, you guys. <laughs> I know the perfect place, too. And, and it goes on. My grandson, Kai, had somehow gotten it into his head that he had to be perfect. Maybe in his case, it's first child syndrome, 
But I believe it goes deeper than that. I believe that each of us, at least in some areas of our lives, struggle with this demon of trying to be perfect. I want you to think for a moment about what standards of perfection you hold for yourself. And ask how often you fail to meet those standards. So just think about that for a second. I'll give you a, a moment of quiet to think about that. Today's reading in Paul's letter to the Romans is addressed to a young emerging church. It's a church that Paul hasn't met yet, and he is talking to them and, and teaching them and exhorting them to live a life worthy of Christ. The first 11 chapters that lead into this chapter that we read today is he lays this theolo theological foundation for what's to come in the letter. And he teaches them a number of things, and I'm going to give you a brief Reader's Digest version of what he teaches. But his whole point is that faith expresses itself in obedience, that we're to believe and think certain things, but we're also called to act in a way that expresses our faith. So the first 11 chapters, here's my very condensed Reader's Digest version that Paul explains, among other things, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we are no longer under the cloud of sin. Jesus grants us peace and extends grace to us. We hear, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And we also hear neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from God's love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then we come to this very first verse in Romans. The shift begins right here from the, theolo the theological base that, that Paul has put down to how we're to practice as, as people of God, as people who believe in Jesus. In verses 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's that word again, perfect. But here's the call, to give ourselves completely unreservedly to God, to be a living sacrifice. And I really believe the heart of most of us is to do that, to, to say, here I am, God, take me as I am. I know I'm faulty, I know I mess up, but I want you to work and act in my life. There's no doubt that we fail in this endeavor to be wholeheartedly given over to God. We fail repeatedly. And we often beat ourselves up over those failings, unnecessarily carrying guilt instead of joy 
experiencing turmoil instead of peace. One of my favorite quotes on this topic comes from St. Julian of Norwich when she wrote in her famous book, The Interior Castle. She said, The Lord looks on his servants with pity and not with blame. In God's sight, we do not fall. In our sight, we do not stand. Both of these are true, but the deeper insight belongs to God. In God's sight, we don't fall. And that deeper insight is the accurate one. To Julian's point, as we look at Romans 1 and 2, it's so, 12, 1 and 2, it's so easy to miss a key word in that very first verse, mercies. The mercies of God. Our perfectionist selves often jump to offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, presenting ourselves holy and pleasing, and we go, wait a minute, I'm not cleaned up enough to do that. That's impossible. I know myself well enough that I'm not holy and pleasing. I can't do that. We forget that it's by God's mercies extended freely to each and every one of us that enable us to present ourselves to him. The cleaning up, the perfecting, if you will, is God's work. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to present ourselves as living sacrifices, to turn ourselves over to the Holy Spirit, to allow God to do the work that only God can do to transform us as people who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, who believe in God's transforming power. The truth is that in God's sight we do not fall, and that deeper insight is God's. Putting this false notion that God demands perfection aside helps us understand what Paul is saying in the second verse of Romans, which is one of my favorites in Scripture. And I love the way J.B. Phillips renders it in his modern language translation of Romans 2. And here's what, how he says it. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remake you so that your whole attitude of mind is changed. Thus you will prove in practice that the will of God is good, acceptable to him, and perfect. You see, it's God's will that's perfect. It's not his expectation that we are. Meeting the challenging of offering ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, isn't easy. In fact, it's been said that the problem with a living sacrifice is it regularly crawls off the altar. We, we wholeheartedly say we want to be gods and then stuff happens. The world tries to squeeze us into its mold and, and our resolve fails us. But as we offer ourselves empowered by God's mercies and as verse 2 instructs not to allow the world to press in on us and 
and, and to allow ourselves to be God's people rather than trying to fit some kind of mold that we're not made for. God remakes us, transforming our attitudes and our hearts and our minds so that we can become more like the people that he's created us to be. Perfection is not required. The only perfection Paul mentions is God's. My grandson's cry, I'm not perfect, is one we are wise to heed. The really good news is we're not expected to be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.